I'm very excited that you're here. We're going to go back to Nehemiah chapter 8 as we see, again, Nehemiah shifting the focus of the rebuilding from the outer walls to the inward hearts of the people. And so far in chapter 8, we've seen that the proper place and the right communication of Scripture is essential for us. We talked about that last week, that Scripture has to have its proper place. But what we're going to see in the last half of chapter 8 is that there also has to be a right response on our part. We can do everything we can to put Scripture in its proper place and to communicate it as clearly and as understandably as we can, but there also is a call for us to respond in the right way. And so here's the very first point, just right out of the gate. Just as there's a right place for Scripture in our lives... There's a right response to Scripture from our lives. And you say, well, what's the difference in that, Eric? The the difference is, is in the question, what good is the Word of God in our lives if we only hear it, but we don't respond to what it says in the right way? The book of James in chapter 1 says, not only should you be hearers of the Word, but be doers of the Word. James says, don't just be the ones who hear it, but be the ones who do it, the ones who act on what it says. Scripture, sometimes I feel like we, we can be tempted to treat it like fine china. And you guys, especially the guys will identify, ladies, you'll know what I'm talking about too. We have fine china in our house. It was given to us when we were married. It's really nice, but you know where it is? It's packed up in a box somewhere in these, in these bags, in the cabinets. Um, like, I haven't seen it in years. We, we don't use it. And why don't you use it? Why don't you just get it out and use it every time you, you eat? Because it's, it's valuable, right? Because it's, it's, it's expensive, it costs a lot of money, so you only pull it out when it's a really special occasion. And every other time, you keep it stashed away to protect it, to keep it safe, because you don't want to break it. If we're not careful, we can treat Scripture that way. We can have such a high regard for God's Word... And there's nothing wrong with having a high regard for God's word. That, that's absolutely what we should do. But we can, we can have such a high regard for it that we lack in using it. We tuck it away to protect it that we, we aren't using it. It's like that fine china that we don't ever want to pull out. There are many churches today that have a very high regard for God's word. And if you ask the question, do they put God's word in its proper place... Yes, the answer is yes, but sometimes they put it in that proper place and they focus on that high regard for it so much that they lack learning how to apply it. They lack learning how to put what it says into action. And what you get in a church like that is a church full of really, really theologically smart and ineffective Christians. You have believers who know their Bible, they know their theology, but they have trouble living out their faith. We want to have a high regard for Scripture, but we also want to have a proper response. Now, in some cases, you take a church who does have a high regard for Scripture. They put it in its right place. They communicate it clearly. They teach it in an effective way where it could be understood. And what we see happening in Nehemiah 8 was there was revival that was breaking out among the people. And you may say, well, why is it... I know churches that that have a healthy, right place that they put Scripture and they teach it and preach it effectively and understandably, but, but nothing happens. 
why doesn't something happen miraculously every time God's word is preached effectively and understandably? Well, it has to do with our hearts. It has to do with our response to it. And that's what we're going to see in the, in the rest of chapter 8. So we're going to start in verse 9 in Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you'll follow along and read with me, we're going to read verses 9 through 12. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration because they had understood the words that were explained to them. So what we saw in the first half was we saw the response of the people to God's word being brought out. And we said that God's word was put in its proper place. You remember they built the big, the big podium, the big um, stage where Ezra and, and, the, and his assistants, his, the teachers were. And he would read it over the people. And even, even him just opening the scroll created a response in the people. And they worshipped. You remember? They raised their hands and they celebrated and they worshipped. And they were, they were humble and they fell on their face. But then he started to read. And as he began to read, we see a response that's a little different. Their first response was, was that of celebration and joy and worship. But the first response that we see of them when they began to understand the content and they began to, to really understand what God's word was instructing them to do, they responded with sorrow. It says they began to weep. Like, he's not even opened it yet, and they're celebrating and worshiping and rejoicing. But now that the word of God is being spoken, and it's being taught, and it's being instructed, now their response is, is weeping and sorrow. I think the, the reason for that is a couple of important principles in Scripture that, we, that we, I want to remind you of. These are Scriptures that you know, but in context, we need to look at them. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 through 17. There's two places in Scripture that's really important where Scripture talks about itself. And this is one of them. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. We've looked at this passage already in this series. And what did I say? That inspired by God literally meant what? Breathed out. God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. And is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be what? Complete, equipped for every good work. So if we look at verse 16, it tells us there's four specific actions that the word of God accomplishes. Four specific things that it does. And two of those things are positive and two of them are kind of negative. It says that scripture is profitable for teaching and training. That feels good. Like, 
Like we get before God's word and say, okay, God, teach me what I need to know. Train me up so that I can be stronger. And, and those are things that kind of feel positive. And, and we welcome that. Like you come to church, you, you want to be trained. You want to be taught. That's why you're here. But then it also says that scripture is profitable for rebuking and correcting. And those are on an equal level with teaching and training, but they're not so positive to us, are they? Rebuking and correcting is not something that we receive very well. We don't receive it very well from people. And so it's, it, it's hurtful, it's painful, but Scripture says that it's profitable for all of these things. It's profitable for what? Making us complete. So what that means is, if Scripture, if we don't allow Scripture to rebuke us and correct us, we'll never be complete. That's part of the, the profit of making us who God wants us to be. The correction and the rebuke has to be there. The good work of Scripture in our lives may not always feel good. It's a good work that the word does in us, but it doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it, it hurts. Sometimes it's painful to be rebuked by God's word to say, hey, listen, what you're doing is wrong. And because of that, this is what you need to do to correct whatever you're doing. It's, whether it's sin in our life, it's the way we live, it's our view of God, it's our view of other people, whatever it is, to be corrected and rebuked is profitable. Also, Hebrews 4.12 is an important one I want us to look at. I want you to write it down. The nature of God's word as it corrects us and rebukes us and trains us and teaches us. Verse 12 in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart do you know why correct and rebuke hurt sometimes because the word of God is like a sword it cuts it cuts deep into who we are it cuts into our life and our and our souls and verse 12 says that scripture is not a dead book do you realize the book that you bring to church every Sunday hopefully the book you open on a daily basis in your home it's a living word it's not dead. And you say, well, how do I know that, Eric? Because it, because it speaks all the time. The reason it's not dead is because it was breathed out by a God who is still alive. Because God is alive, the Word of God is alive. You, you can't separate the two. And the Holy Spirit speaks and the Holy Spirit moves through His Word when we read it. You know what it's like to read the same passage of Scripture for the 87th time and learn something new from it or to read it in a different way based on whatever your circumstances are. You know why? Because that's the Holy Spirit because the Word of God is alive. It knows. It, it, it speaks. The Holy Spirit knows what we're going through. It knows what we're experiencing and, and what God is doing in us. It's the breath of the living God speaking into our lives. And so when we need to be rebuked and we need to be corrected, it, it can hurt, it can cut like a sword. But what that lets us know and what that lets me know as someone who preaches and teaches God's word, and, and some of you guys are, are preachers and you, and you teach, 
what we can know is that we can study God's word and we can receive it and we can teach it and trust it to do what it does. When I get up here to preach for you and teach God's word to you, I don't have to try to manipulate God's word into doing something in you that it can't do by itself. I don't have to add anything to it. I don't have to come up with gimmicks. And, and, and that's where I fear that so many churches are, are, are getting off the path because they constantly feel like there's got to be a gimmick to the way they teach God's word. You don't need a gimmick. You just need the word. It is strong enough to do what it does on its own. He, it doesn't need my help. My job is to tell you what it says. And the Holy Spirit that works through it and the Holy Spirit that works in your heart and in the midst of this group as we sit under the teaching and the preaching of it, he will do what he will do. And you don't, he doesn't need my help. So I don't, I don't have to try to come up with funny gimmicks to try to get you to understand and respond to something. We trust God's word to do that. So when the people heard the word and they understood it, they were moved to tears. They knew what the law was, they understood what it said, and they realized we haven't been doing that. And so they experienced conviction and they were moved to tears. Um, they were convicted by the rebuking and correcting of God's word in their heart. And we should experience the same thing from time to time. If you are never corrected and rebuked by the Bible, you're probably not reading it. And if you're never corrected or rebuked by the Bible, you're not reading it correctly. If you only go to God's word for the feel good, you're missing it. We, we should invite the word to rebuke and correct us in humility. But here's the funny thing. If this is a good response, if this response of tears, humility in the people is a good thing, do you find it strange that Nehemiah and Ezra correct them and tell them to stop crying? I kind of thought that. I was like, no, this is a good thing. That the, the people are, are mourning their sin and their, and their distance from, from obedience to God's law. Like, yes, it's a good thing that they're doing this. Why are you telling them to stop? So when you study a little bit about God's instructions and you remember the time and the, the, the festival that they were actually reviving in that moment, it was called the festival of booths or the, or the feast of um, tabernacles it's sometimes called or the festival of shelters. There's lots of names for it. But I want you to look at this and write this down. Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 15. There's instructions. You remember they were going back to God's word reading the law, getting the instructions for how they were to observe these festivals. And this festival that they were in the midst of celebrating right now, at some point Ezra read the instructions for how, what this festival meant. And this is what it says in verse 13. You are to celebrate the festival of shelters for seven days when you have gathered in everything from your threshing floor and wine press. Rejoice during your festival, you, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, as well as the Levite, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your city gates. You are to hold a seven-day festival for the Lord your God in the place he chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands, and you will have what? 
abundant joy. It's not that Nehemiah and Ezra don't want the people to mourn over their own sin. Of course they do. But the festival, the time of year that they were observing and trying to follow God's directions on wasn't a time for mourning and weeping. The festival that they were observing, God had given them instruction that this festival is a time to celebrate. It's a time to be joyful. It's not a time to weep and cry. This was the time of year when the gathering of all the harvest came in. The gathering of, of, it says, the threshing floor and the wine press, the fruit, all of those things. Basically, God said, all of the hard work and labor that you've put in, bring in all of your harvest from all your hard work and eat it and celebrate and have a great, great time. Joy was God's intent for this festival. And it was established by God as a celebration. So this is why, if you go back to Nehemiah 8 and you look at verse 10, when Nehemiah and Ezra correct them, they say, no, don't weep. They say, eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, And send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to the Lord. They're saying, guys, this day is set aside for something specific, and it's set aside for celebration. This day has been set aside by God for joy. So stop crying. Because in in weeping over the fact that you're dishonoring God's law, you're kind of disobeying God's law, because God's law for this festival is for you to be celebrating for you to be joyful in, in what he's done. And, and, the, and, and he says, look, bring in your harvest and celebrate your hard work because I'm going to bless it. So in verse 12, it says they began to do it. So as soon as Ezra and Nehemiah said, hey, hey, look, the whole point of this festival is not for us to cry, it's for us to celebrate. Bring in your food, share it with the people who don't have any. Everybody inside the city walls is supposed to participate in this. And so celebrate and eat and drink and have a great time. So it says they started to do that in verse 12 because they understood the words that were explained to them. Do you see that? Sometimes sometimes our first approach to God's word may send us in a direction that we don't need to go. Sometimes it takes somebody explaining to us, right? Have you ever misinterpreted what you read in the Bible? I have. Have you ever just read something on the surface and thought, oh, well, here's what it means. And then later on, somebody else pointed out to you, but what about this? And maybe you read something deeper and you went, oh, wow, that means something totally different. I didn't see that before. That's kind of what's happening. The people are so caught up in their their conviction that he's like, hold on a minute. You guys are forgetting what this time is for. And God has said this time is for joy, is for celebrating. So they started to do that. They said, okay, they heard Nehemiah and Ezra's words, and they were like, oh, oh, yeah, you guys are right. So then they started to celebrate and observe the festival the way God had told them to. Keep going. Look at verse 13, back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 13. On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters 
during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters, just as it is written. The people went out, brought back branches, and made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated this from the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day. And there was what? Tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So that's a lot. But here's what happened. The second day, the first day, is the assembly where everybody is listening to Ezra and he's reading the word. The Levites are interpreting and teaching the word to the people. So at the end of that day when it was over, everybody went home, but something else happened on the second day. Another group gathered with Ezra. But it wasn't the whole big crew with everybody, the men, the women, and the children that could understand. It was the leaders of the homes. It was the men, the heads of the family. And they got together with the priest and the Levites and says, okay, we're going to go beyond just hearing it read and you guys teaching us. We want to study. We want to dig. Because we want to make sure we're doing this right. We want to make sure that we understand so that we can go back and lead our families in the proper way. So that's an incredible example. But then something happened. They discovered something that they had not seen before. And this, again, reinforces what I've told you over and over and over. I hope that you are studying God's Word at home. I hope that you are reading your Bible when you're not here. I hope that you are a part of a small group. I hope that you're part of a Sunday school class. And, and you say, oh, you talk, people talk about small groups in Sunday school all the time. I've never been a part of that. Sunday school is where they found out what they needed to be doing. Like this is where the, uh, some of the correction came because they got into a smaller group of people said we're going to study God's word beyond just hearing it taught from a platform and we want to dig deep so that we can understand it better so that we can be more obedient to it. So God will show you deeper truths when you read it yourself. He will show you deeper truths in a Bible study group. He will speak to you through other people. Nobody really talks in here except me. This isn't the atmosphere where people are engaging back and forth and they're asking questions and they're saying, well, you know what, when I read it, this is something that came out to me. And and when I studied this, I came across this resource that says this little piece of history that'll help us understand what this means. And, And those kind of discussions that go on in a small group bring instruction on a deeper level than just coming and listening to me preach on a Sunday morning. So this is why this is so important. Literally, they got into their small groups and they studied, and it says that they discovered something. It says they found written in the law. You know what that word found means? 
it means to discover or to come upon. You know what that tells me? That there was something in the law that they had missed. There was something there that they either had read over and not paid attention to or maybe something that they did know at one point but they forgot. And now as they were taking time to dig and study, they found something. And part of the observance, they were, what they found was that they were observing this festival of, of booths, this festival of shelters, and they, and they understood the part about eating and drinking and celebrating and bringing in the harvest. That was great. But there was another instruction that had to do with this festival that they had forgotten about. And it had to do with the shelters. And so all of this about the shelters, basically you can go back to, write down this reference and you can study it on your own. Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 43. If you go back to Leviticus, it's where God gives them the instructions for how they should celebrate this festival of shelters. And it basically, what he told them to do was get outside of your house and build a shelter outside and live in it for seven days. And the shelter, he gave them specific instructions about how to build it. And he told them to build it out of branches and palms and big leaves. It really, I just finished watching this, the season, season 42 of Survivor. I don't know how many of you guys are Survivor fans, but when I read this and this description of these booths, I picture the kind of shelters that the contestants on Survivor build. They, they put up a frame with maybe some wood, and then they take the branches and they weave them together, and they make a... This is the way God said for them to build these shelters. And he says, put them in your courtyards, put them outside, put them on your rooftops. You say, well, that sounds weird. Well, in these days, their roofs were flat, and they would use their roofs. As, as almost like another level of the house. And so he said, go up on the, your roof and build a shelter. Go outside. Go out, get outside of your house and build a shelter and live there for seven days. And when you read Leviticus 23, you say, well, why did he want them to do that? It was to remember how God had taken care of them after the exodus. Because they wandered in the wilderness. They, their ancestors had to build these kinds of shelters because they were constantly traveling from place to place, these temporary dwellings. And he says, for you to remember what happened before. We're talking about remembering again. You remember what happened before. I want you for, a, for seven days, for this week, to go out and live as they lived. Build these shelters just like them. So that you can remember not so much what they did, but so you can remember what I did. So that you can remember how I preserved them and protected them when I rescued them out of Egypt. And so, that, those verses say that when they discovered this, what'd they do? They immediately started doing it. It says they found it, and once they found it, they said, we gotta do this, and so they spread the word all throughout. Said, hey, everybody, go get, go get the branches. Bring them in. Build your shelters. We, here's something that God told us to do that we've neglected. So we gotta do it. And it was immediate. That, that, that was their heart. And verse 17 tells us that the result of their obedience was what? There was tremendous joy. There was joy in obedience to God's word. So this morning I want us to think about how that applies to us. When God brings us to the point where he shows us what his word says and we see it and we realize we're guilty, we've not done that or we've neglected it 
or we've not thought it was really important, but now we've come under conviction and realized we're guilty. We need to, I, I need to be doing what God's word says and go from that sorrow to joy. God's intent is not for us to just live in sorrowful conviction all the time. His, his goal is for there to be tremendous joy in our lives as we obey. So how do we go from this, this sorrow of disobedience to the joy of obedience? And I, and I think it's in this chapter. And I'm going to give it to you in four things. I'm going to give them to you all at one time because we're going to go through them kind of quick. But here are what I think is in this chapter, four things that kind of move us from, from sorrow to joy, from disobedience to obedience, okay? And the first one is attention to God's instruction. The first thing we have to do is pay attention to what God's Word says and, and give intentional attention to it. That's, that's a lot of shuns. Intentional attention. Be willing to get beyond the surface of Scripture. If you want to really be serious about experiencing joy in your life as a believer, get serious about finding out what God's Word really says. And listen, I'll say this to you. Don't, don't just listen to people. Don't just listen to the preacher on the radio. Don't just listen to me. Don't just listen to podcasts and authors that you think, because sometimes, sometimes we are wrong. Get into God's Word. Intentionally study. Search it. Look for the truth in it. Give it attention. Some of us, I think, approach God's word the way um, my beautiful wife Kim says that I approach looking for things in the house. Do, do any of you other husbands get accused of what my wife calls man looking? You go, you say, honey, where is this? And she says, well, it's, 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 in, the, it's in the bedroom. And what do we do? We go in the bedroom I can't find it. It's not in there. And she goes, it's in there. You just man looked. That's exactly what she'll say. You got to quit man looking. And she'll go in and she'll go to exactly the place that it is and and just pull it out and say, here it is. If you had just picked up something, you would have found it. Are you man looking through God's word? Are are, Are you just opening it up and reading it and checking the box and closing it up and saying, well, I didn't really learn anything today. There's nothing here. Part of the reason we don't find truth in God's words is because we're not really looking for it. We're not really searching for it and intentionally trying to find it. We're just, we're just skimming the top. And we'll never get to joy by skimming the top. Intention to God's instruction. The second thing is discovery of God's purpose. Once you start digging, you're going to find stuff. You're going to discover things that you haven't seen before. You're going to find stuff that you didn't know was there. See, beyond the instruction to, to God's heart for the instruction and the purpose for the instruction, you'll find new things. In God's word that you'll think, I've never seen this before. I've never, I've never read this. So you begin to discover not just the instruction, but discover God's purpose for it. Maybe in, in your studying and digging, you see an instruction that's been there all along. But in your digging, you come to understand what's God's purpose for that instruction. I've just been doing it because the Bible said to do it. But now the more I study, I understand that there's a heart of God behind that instruction. 
Why does God tell me to do this? Why does God tell me to stay away from this? Why does God say, don't go there, don't be involved in these things? And the more we study about the people and the more we study God's word, we'll come to understand not just that it's a big book of rules, but we'll see the heart of a father who loves us deeply. We discover God's purposes after we give attention to his instruction. And then number three, when we find the new instruction, we understand God's purpose for it, we have to obey it, obedience to what God's will is. That's what we see. The people, they were reading and studying. They found something new. They understood what it was for, that, that this festival was not for, not for mourning, but it was for celebrating. And said, okay, we're going to do that. And then, oh, we're supposed to be building shelters. We got to do that. They were immediately obedient when they found out that God had instruction for them. Once we know what God's word says, we have to take steps to obey and apply what we discover. When we're digging through God's word, that's where some churches get messed up, like I said at the very beginning. They dig and discover and their theology becomes rich, but their practice is empty. You can know so much about the Bible and bear no fruit from it. Because there's no obedience that goes along with it. So we have to strive to be obedient. But we all know, if we're honest, obedience is hard. I mean, I'm not standing up here telling you, oh, you should obey God's word and expect it to be easy. It's not easy. It's hard. Rich Mullins used to sing a song that said it's hard to be like Jesus, and it is. It's extremely difficult to be obedient to God's word. But in our attention and then our discovery in our obedience, it leads to the very last thing. And this is the thing I really want you to get. We give attention to God's word. We discover his purpose. We obey what he says. And then we experience strength in God's joy. That fourth thing is what comes in because obedience is hard. And God knows it's hard. So he promises to give us strength. In the verses we just read... Um, it's back in verse 10. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. I suspect that many of you are probably like me and how I was for a long time. Every time I read that word, and we've sang songs about it as a kid growing up in church, songs about the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Bible school songs. I've always heard that phrase and sang those words thinking that the joy that that verse was talking about was my joy. But it's not. That verse isn't talking about my joy. That verse is talking about God's joy. And, and I even went and looked at the, looked at the, the languages to say, am, am, I, am I reading that correctly? That, that that is talking about God's joy, not mine. And that's exactly what, what the Hebrew is saying. He says, do not grieve because the joy of the Lord, the joy that belongs to God, is your strength. Your strength to what? Obey. Because obeying is hard. So God says, obedience to my word is hard. You're going to need strength outside of yourself to be able to obey my word. I know that, and I'm going to give you the strength that you need through my joy. The joy he's talking about is God's. There is joy that God finds in you. There is joy that God finds in our relationship 
with him. You say, what is God joyful about? He's joyful that you are in relationship with him. He is joyful when we pursue and study his word. When we don't treat it as an accessory to our Sunday morning outfit. When we actually open it and read it and study it and and chase after its truth. That brings joy to the heart of God. God has joy in our growth. He has joy in our understanding. He has joy in our application. How do you think it makes God feel when you open up his word and you see something new that you've never seen before and your heart wants to obey it and you try your best to obey it? God says, that makes my heart joyful. That brings me joy. God's joy over us and our relationship with him is our strength for the obedience you see that? Our obedience produces joy for the Lord in us after that. Let me, let, me try to, let me try to illustrate it this way. How many of you remember like when you were a kid, you maybe played a sport or you, you performed dance, music, athlete or whatever, and your parents were always in the crowd watching you? And your parents were always cheering for you. Why did they cheer for you? Did your parents cheer for you because you always did it perfect? Because you never missed a note? Because you never misstepped? Because you never struck out? Because you never fumbled? Did they cheer for you because you were absolutely perfect in how you performed? Mm Mm-mm. They cheered for you because you were their child. They cheered for you. And listen, and and as a parent now, I understand. I can go and watch my kids. And I remember my boys when they were little. I loved baseball, and I would take them to baseball games, and I would watch them. And it didn't matter if they went 0 for 4 with 4 strikeouts. I loved watching them play. It brought me joy. And you say, well, where does God's joy for us come from? He he doesn't have joy over you because you perform perfectly all the time. God isn't joyful over you because you always get it right. He's joyful over you because you're his kid and you're in the game. And flip flip it for a second. If you were that kid playing on the field or, or dancing on the stage or singing or playing in the recital, and you hear the joyful heart of your parents cheering for you, what did that do for you? That made you want to keep playing, didn't it? That made you want to keep, keep trying. Even when you were struggling, even, even when I was 0 for 3 and I'd struck out three times and I was up in my fourth at bat, I could hear my mom in the stands cheering for me. It made me want to do well, not because I knew I had to get a hit for her to approve. I knew that she already approved and loved and loved watching me play, and I just wanted to do something for her joy. And you know what happens? When we get it right and we obey, then God's joy strengthens us to obey his word, and when we are able to obey his word, it produces joy in us too. So you say, how do we get to that joy? Through obedience. If you ever wonder how God feels about you. If you are ever having one of those kind of days where you are trying to obey 
but it's just not working. And you are weak, and you don't have any strength, and maybe you're thinking, you know, I don't even know if it's worth it. I don't even know why I'm in the game. I just kind of want to quit. I found this in Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah is probably not a book that you read a lot out of your Bible. But Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, part of a prophecy, I want you to hear it. And I think this is a verse that you could write down. And when you're having one of those days and you're like, I don't even know how God feels about me right now. You could read this and it will encourage you. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. Don't quit. Be strong. Why? Verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I'm here to tell you that God does not bear over his children. Like an, like an overbearing baseball dad trying to live his life over through his kids, barking at them and telling them what they're doing wrong all the time and saying, you better step it up and you better do better and you better correct this and correct that and you're doing this wrong. That's not what he does. He's not that kind of father. He doesn't have to worry about whether the game's going to be won because he's already won the game. If we obey God out of guilt, out of comparison, out of a fight for approval or reputation in the eyes of other people, you can do that, but you're going you're gonna to get weak. You can try that for a while, and you may be able to endure and do that for a little while, but you're not going to be able to do it for long because you're going to get tired, and your strength is going to vanish. It's going to go away, and you're going to become empty. And what happens when we serve out of those things and our strength to continue to do that fades out, we get bitter. We get bitter and we get resentful toward people and we get resentful toward God. But if we obey in the strength that comes through the joy in the heart of God for us, if we can obey in the strength of knowing that our Father rejoices over our, His relationship with us, it produces joy in our lives and a desire to keep growing, to keep learning, and to keep obeying, not in our own strength, but in the strength that's given to us by the joy of our Father who loves us. That's why Ezra and Nehemiah said to the people, don't weep because the joy of the Lord is your strength. He, they were saying to the people, you've got a long way to go. There's lots of stuff that we've got to correct here. But you're not going to be able to do it on your own. So stop mourning and stop weeping because God's intent is not for you to correct your life on your own. He has a strength that he's going to give you to be obedient to his word. And that strength comes from how joyful he is over being in a relationship with you because you are his 